2012, uh, something really interesting happened. Uh, we probably, none of us were dialed into it at the moment, but if you're a, an entrepreneur or maybe a business owner or just find that kind of stuff interesting, you may remember that in 2012, a guy named Alan Mulally, he was the CEO of Ford Motor Company at the time, he made what at the time seemed to be a preposterous announcement to the shareholders. They had made a decision that they were going to take the Ford F-150, which has been for over 40 years the best-selling truck in America. Uh, some of those years it's been the best-selling vehicle in America. Now uh, this is like their cash cow. This is their prize product. They made the announcement that they were going to stop making it out of steel after nearly 40 years, and they were going to start making it out of aluminum. And the reason was because they, they figured that they could save about 700 pounds in weight, which would lead to better fuel economy. So that's a good deal. I mean, uh, you know, it's a lot of techno babble to us, but better fuel economy, sign me up, right? Consumers like that. So they're going to start making it out of aluminum. Now, let's do a little quiz, okay? My friend Norm here worked at Kaiser Aluminum for roughly 170 years, or probably felt like that. Uh, so he doesn't get to answer because he knows. But uh, when you think of aluminum, what are a couple of products that come immediately to mind when you think of aluminum? Anybody? Soda can. Aluminum foil. Uh, those are probably like the two. There's definitely others. Did you have one, Gary? Tin cans? Yeah, uh, those are tin, but no, I'm, I'm teasing. Yeah, right. Soda cans, though, right? Is that, is that what you mean? Uh, soda cans and aluminum foil. Now, let me ask you a question, Gary. Do you feel safe riding in a car that's made out of aluminum foil? Would, would you feel safe with that? I don't think so either. Uh, you know, uh, uh, an aluminum can, a soda can, it's a little stronger, a little more sturdy. I still don't want to get in a collision in one, right? If you go out and buy a work truck, you probably don't want, to make, want it to be made out of aluminum foil. Uh, so you can see there's a potential for public perception problem there, right? Uh, in my mind's eye, aluminum is not as strong as steel. Now, Norm could probably tell you that depending on the alloy and the gauge, you know, how it's made, aluminum can actually be stronger than steel. But if you went around this room, Norm might be the only person who knew that. Uh, some of us might have been able to figure that out. But you can see this could be a train wreck, right? This could be a huge PR problem. Not to mention that in order to do it, they were going to have to shut down the plant where they built the F-150 and retool the entire thing because the process is totally different than steel. So Alan Mulally's job was to go to the shareholder meeting and convince them that in the next year, they should make $2 billion less, that that was a good idea. So let's pretend that we're Ford shareholders. And I came to you and I said, hey, next year, let's make $2 billion less. Uh, so your choice is more money or less money. Which one are you going to choose? You're going to choose more money, right? If it's just that simple. Like if, I, if we're Ford shareholders and we have the best product or the, at least the best selling product, I don't want to offend anybody's alliances there, the best selling product in our industry, uh, we want to keep it the best selling product in the industry because that means more, more money for us. Well, him and his team decided that it was worth the gamble because if they could convince the shareholders to do this, it would have future benefit down the road. Make sense? The risk is I go there and they don't approve and they run us all out of town, right? Making $2 billion less isn't the kind of thing that we as shareholders get excited about. It's the kind of thing we as shareholders fire CEOs for. Uh, but he decided it was worth the risk. They were so convinced that if they made the change now, it would create value in the future. And they were right. 
This year will be the best-selling year ever for the Ford F-150 in the history of the product. And the shareholders, uh, the shareholders bought into the pitch. Uh, most of them, not all of them, there were some who sold out, but the value of their stock actually increased because they bought into the idea that if we make the sacrifice now, there will be future benefit for us. What we're going to talk about in the next few minutes is going to work the exact same way. If you'll buy into it, this Christmas story will create value for you in the future. The future will be a better place for you and for the people you love if you'll buy into it. It'll be more peaceful. It'll be more uh, joyful if you'll buy into the Christmas story right here. So let's start in the really shallow water. Um, I am a person who jumps all the way in and just get it over with when I know the water's cold, uh, but I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that to you. So let's start in the shallow water right here. Have you ever been hostile towards someone you didn't know? Uh, I'll give you an example. When I was a kid, I hated Larry Bird. I'm West Coast. Magic Johnson, the Lakers, Showtime, grew up in the, in the 80s. I was a Lakers fan, and I hated the Boston Celtics, and Larry Bird was the devil. And my friend Ian was a huge Celtics fan, and we would have shouting matches on the playground, and he was wrong. I couldn't stand Larry Bird. Now, of all the things Larry Bird could possibly care about, uh, I know for sure one thing he doesn't care about. He doesn't care about the fact that I hated him, but I still, I had like physical hostility toward Larry Bird. Uh, how about like a political figure or a political party you ever have hostility towards somebody who holds a different view? Uh, maybe a celebrity, uh, somebody you disagree with but don't have a personal connection to? The question I would ask is if there's just general hostility in our culture like that, uh, it's sort of passive, it's not necessarily personal, if there's general hostility like that, is it a big deal? Does it take a toll on us? Well, the question I would ask is, if there's general hostility in our society, has it made us more peaceful or more fulfilled or more joyful? Has it done that? I think the answer is clearly no. Um, I think the answer for us personally, has that general hostility made you more peaceful or more fulfilled or more joyful? Probably not. Like, likely the answer is no. And the reason is because even passive or general hostility will erode our joy, even if it's not personal, even if it's not, uh, it, it's not relational necessarily, even the passive general kind of hostility and bitterness will erode our joy. It's like this. Uh, I'm driving around the, down the road the other day, and there's a car in this lane, a car in this lane, and they're driving along, and this guy puts on his signal because he wants to get over. What does this car do? Speed up. Why? What could possibly be the reason? Now, if you've done that before, it's okay. You're drowning in this, this dynamic. But for what reason? Well, because there's general hostility. These are the kinds of things that happen. Uh, I almost never watch the national news because I know that at the end of it, I'm going to be irritated. That's a pretty easy fix, though, right? Just don't watch. Just turn the channel. You know, I don't want to let that thing steal my joy. And the reality is we live in, in what I would say are generally hostile times in that regard. Same dynamic existed in Jesus' day. Same dynamic. Luke chapter 2 it tells the story of Jesus' birth. 
Luke 2, verse 1 says, at the time of the Roman emperor Augustus, uh, he was the Caesar, uh, that's kind of what they, the title of their king, his name was Augustus. The Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All, everyone, returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. So at the time Jesus is born, Israel is again a conquered nation under Caesar Augustus. Uh, the Romans at this point in world history had replaced the Greeks as kind of the dominant power of the Near Eastern Mediterranean world. Uh, and so they're, they're an occupied nation. Easy to crawl into that situation. Imagine our city being occupied by a foreign army. Uh, there's hostility. We're going to be hostile. We're going to be bitter to some degree about that situation. Not hard to figure out why they might be bitter toward the Romans. But it goes so much deeper than that because... Uh, how do you support your occupation if you're the Romans? Well, you tax the heck out of the people who live there. Some historians say that they may have even been taxed as highly as about 90%. Uh, you want to be hostile about that? Okay. Uh, according to USA Today, I, I had to look this up just to figure out like, what the comparison was. According to USA Today, uh, Washingtonians pay, on average, 9.3% of their personal income uh, in state and local taxes, so not counting federal taxes that you file at the end of the year, but uh, like property tax, income tax, which we don't have in this state, and sales tax. So uh, if you own a home, it's property tax. If you don't, it's just sales tax, right? Uh, we pay, on average, 9.3% of our income. So uh, just imagine paying 90% to an occupying army. Uh, easy to see why they would be hostile, why there would be a a hostile culture from them. Add to that the way the Romans ruled. Uh, they had such a vast empire, there's no way they could have uh, an army that was everywhere. So what they would do is they would come to a local area and figure out who's the most influential, powerful, wealthy person in this local area, and they would make them into proxy kings. It would be their job to keep the peace. So you have a guy named Herod, who is the proxy king right here. He's He's not really one of the boys with the Romans, because he's just their puppet, and he's certainly not one of the boys with the Jews who live here, uh, because he's a sellout to the Romans, and this creates all kinds of insecurity and hostility for these proxy kings, because uh, they have nowhere to go. They have to maintain their position, and the scripture tells us that Herod was actually so cruel that when he heard that the king of the Jews had been born... He actually had all of the infant boys in that region exterminated. Um, this is the kind of situation they lived in. So as you can imagine, when they thought of their government, when they thought of their rulers and their leaders, they were very hostile. A lot of hostility in the air. It existed in their time. It exists in our time. Really, really similar. So let me ask you this question. Have you ever felt the effects of general sort of cultural hostility in your life? Have you maybe seen in your life that you've gotten a little more cynical, a little more critical, a little more negative than maybe you used to be in the past? Have you, have you felt the weight of that 
Well, I think there's a reason, uh, and it has to do with this cultural dynamic. Here's one of the biggest problems I have with this, just, just as I examine my own life, is that as I become more negative, if I become more cynical, as that uh, cultural bitterness sort of weighs down on me, what happens to the people I love? It, it spills over onto them. Now, I don't want to let this, this uh, sort of passive general hostility steal my own joy. I don't want to let it erode my own joy, but I certainly don't want to let it erode the joy of the people I love. Does that make sense? This is something that we've really got to watch out for. We've got to pay attention to the effects of that. The good news is it's a choice. We have some options. Rather than going with the flow and being sucked into the negativity and pessimism, Paul, uh, in Philippians chapter 4, he gives us an option. This is what he says. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me and everything you heard from me and saw me doing. And then, this is the important part, and then the God of peace will be with you. He says in Colossians 2, uh, maybe a more succinct version, he says, set your mind on things above. What you think about, how you choose to think, makes all the difference. So for us here at Center Church, we have a, a short list of core values. I think there's six of them on there. One of them is a culture of joy and optimism. Some people opt for hostility. Some people opt for bitterness. Some people just love, just get joy out of having social media battles about one issue or another. Uh, I guess they probably don't get joy, but it feeds something in them. Some people love to be hostile toward this political party or that one. That's fine, but for me, I don't want to waste my life on that. I want to choose joy and optimism. And it starts with fixing our thoughts on what is true and honorable, right, pure, lovely, praiseworthy. It starts with setting our minds on things above. But what about the deeper kind of hostility? The kind that makes you feel like that guy. The personal kind. Uh, so we started in the shallow end. If you wondered, we're sort of pretty quickly moving toward the deeper, the deeper waters. What about the kind that just spills over into all-out bitterness? Uh, it's a danger that we all have. Some of you probably are like, yep, I totally know. When I think of that person, I feel nothing but rage. I feel nothing but anger. Uh, I've been hurt, been offended, uh, and that hurt and offense grows over time. The more we let it roll around in our heads and it gets a lot harder to get rid of it. It gets a lot harder, certainly, than turning the channel, turning off the news broadcast. Because rejection and betrayal, those kinds of things, they strike at the core of who we are. They strike at our self-worth. And it's a pretty soul-crushing experience. Uh, probably, probably all of us have, been, have experienced something like that, some kind of uh, rejection or betrayal that was just, just deflating. You know, the kind that you just, you just can't shake it off. When somebody who's in authority over us or uh, someone that we love deeply, when they hurt us, the bitterness sets in really, really quickly. It, it happens, happens pretty easily. Pretty safe to say that we've all had that experience. It's definitely safe to say that we all have been around people who have allowed themselves to become defined by their bitterness. 
Um, it becomes very noticeable in their attitude towards everything. So have you ever had a confrontation with someone where, um, you know, you just, you just really put them in their place? That person that you're bitter, bitter at, you just, you just made them understand why they were wrong and you were right and why they're an idiot. And then all of a sudden, uh, you snapped back into place and thought, oh, yeah, I'm the only one here. That was just in my head, right? You ever had those, have those kind of conversations? Um, the good news is all of us have had them. Uh, we've all taught someone else a lesson in our own mind. Uh, we've all done that. The bad news is those conversations only serve to deepen the bitterness. They don't help anybody recognize the error of their ways. Uh, they don't put anyone in their place. They don't make that person feel as bad as they made you feel. It only deepens the bitterness. It's the only thing that comes out of those conversations. Uh, and so instead of being in bitterness up to here, now we're in bitterness up to here. That's that's the only result, and I know, I get it. It's hard. It's hard not to go that direction, but that's all they really accomplish. One of the most important things we can see in the Bible from the Christmas story is that God is sympathetic to those wounds. Uh, in fact, God in Christ chose to subject himself to that kind of betrayal, to that kind of pain. And what he does is, uh, sometimes we'll read this scripture and uh, conviction will come over us, and it's like God's sort of calling us out, you know, shining a light on our screw-ups, and in a sense, maybe, but what he's really doing is he's calling us up. God, God's not trying to drag your failure out into light so that everyone can see what a screw-up you are and you feel bad. He's trying to call you up to something better. It's not about calling you out, and if that's where you're at, I want to call you up right now, okay? We read about earlier how Jesus and Mary went to Bethlehem for the census, and there was this general hostility uh, that everyone was experiencing as a culture, but it was also a personal hostility for them. Watch, watch what happens in the next verse, Luke 2, verse 6. It says, and while they were there in Bethlehem, it, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. Okay, now I have a mental picture of this situation, right? They come to Bethlehem, there's no room at the inn, right? Most, most translations, uh, this particular one says uh, there was no lodging available for them. Most translations say something like there was no room at the inn. Uh, now, I have a picture of like a primitive Motel 6. I don't know about you, but like, you know, it's a place with a whole bunch of different rooms and they can stroll right up on their camel and tie it off outside their room and go in and, and stay there. That's just my mental picture. Uh, sort of what I've always envisioned, but uh, it's just like a first century motel where lots of people stay, a whole bunch of rooms in it. Uh, but what's crazy about this is if you look at the original language, uh, it doesn't actually imply where it says lodging or it says the inn. It doesn't imply like a primitive motel or hotel. The literal meaning is a guest room. There's no guest room available to you. The guest room is not available to you. So if you, just, if you take that translation, that literal meaning of the word, um, and think about it this way. They went to Bethlehem, which is Joseph's hometown. It's where his family is from, and the guest room was full. So whose guest room was it? Probably someone in Joseph's family. When they got to the door, and Mary's like, I'm having a baby now. And they said... Sorry, the guest room is not available to you. 
Uh, it was probably someone in his family. It was definitely someone who knew his family. And they said, yeah, sorry, no guest room. Now, if someone that you're maybe loosely related to or they're related to someone you know shows up and, and they're in this kind of dire situation, aren't you going to make something work? Aren't, aren't you going to move somebody around uh, just to at least, you know, bring them indoors uh, in some way? Uh, but no, they said, ah, you know, you can go ahead and use the, use the barn. Uh, the barn's available. The stable is available to you. Uh, think about how that must have felt to Joseph and to Mary. Uh, especially, I, I really think of Joseph because he's the one sort of bearing the burden of taking care of Mary and this baby. Think about the betrayal they must have felt. I mean, that's a rough rejection by any standard. You think your family's jacked. Look at their situation. The best Joseph's family and family friends could do for them was let them crash in their barn. The best the world could muster for God's own son was a basket of hay. And this is where John says in John 1 verse 11 that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Now that verse is specifically talking about the Jewish people, but it started on day one. Jesus came to his own, God's son came to his own, and they did not receive him. One of the names for Jesus in the Bible is Emmanuel, which means, as many of you know, God with us. And my point in saying all of that is that God can empathize with your wounds, with your frustration, with rejection, with betrayal. Um, He came into the human experience through Christ. If you're stuck in a perpetual cycle of bitterness, he understands And it's not his intention for you to stay there. So whether the hostility is general, sort of culture-wide, or personal, um, it's it's been a reality of life for a long time, and God's will is for you to get out from under the weight of that. Um, And he understands it's not as easy as just forgive and forget, uh, but he has plans for you, and the Christmas story shows us that he wants us to be free from that weight. God understands your pain. He understands what it's like. And Jesus came to set you free for that. So watch this verse, Hebrews 12, 15. It says, look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Now it's pretty clear from this verse that God doesn't want you to live filled with bitterness. But here's what we do sometimes. Sometimes we think, yeah, I know I am bitter, But I know it's there, so I'll work on it. But it's really not my fault. I'm the victim, right? Sort of justify it by saying, okay, at least I acknowledge it, and it's not my fault. Those are justifications that we sometimes will use for it. And I think what we have to realize when we look at that scripture is that that doesn't make it okay. That certainly doesn't make it a good place to live. That sometimes we're sort of tricking ourselves with fallacious thinking into just staying under the weight, and and God wants us to be free from that. Here's what I find most interesting about this verse. It doesn't say, don't be bitter because bitterness is sinful, because bitterness is wrong, because it's bad, it's offensive. It, It doesn't say that. It says, watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you. Don't let bitterness trouble you. It's not about being a good Christian. It's about being free. It's about getting out from under the soul-crushing weight. Being stuck in bitterness is just simply not God's plan. It's not God's plan A for you. I think of it this way. He doesn't want you to be free from bitterness for his sake 
or even for the sake of someone else. He wants you to be free from bitterness for your sake so that it's not troubling you, so that it's not weighing you down. Uh, I heard this story, and it uh, sort of became a pretty famous metaphor uh, about a hunter who was out in the woods, because that's where hunters do their thing, and they found a uh, skeleton of an eagle, uh, which is weird for me, because I just don't really think of it, but yes, animals do live and die in the woods, so it's not hard to believe. And on this particular eagle skeleton, there was a partial skeleton of a weasel with its head attached to the eagle's neck. Um, apparently, the two had been in a little scrape, and, uh, and now you know, they're both dead. And so um, you think about like, how that might happen. Um, they both eat the same kind of food. They're both, uh, they're both carnivores. They both eat rodents and uh, that kind of thing. Eagles you know, sometimes eat fish, but they both eat small animals. So it's possible that maybe the two of them got in a little scrape over the same prey. Uh, maybe they were both trying to catch the same rabbit or something like that. Or maybe one of them did and the other one came and tried to take it away. Uh, it's also possible uh, weasels will eat eggs. It's possible that the weasel was... Got a, climbed up into the nest and was trying to eat the eagle's eggs. That's a possibility. It's also possible that the eagle saw the weasel and thought, hey, I'm going to swoop down and scoop that thing up. And what are you going to do if an eagle swoops down and like, picks you up off the ground? Well, you're going to fight back, right? Uh, we don't really know uh, the answer to the question, who started it? There's no way to know whose fault it is, who initiated it. But the question I would probably ask is, does it matter at this point? Because they're both dead. Bitterness is like that. At some point, it stops mattering who started it. What starts to matter more is, will I get out from under the weight of it? Uh, Maybe the other person did start it, but do I want to be free from it? Eventually, blame stops mattering. Because eventually, you go from feeling bitter to being bitter. Slowly but surely, you go from feeling hostile to being hostile, and that's when it starts to spill over onto the people that you don't want to hurt. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, I understand that it's not as simple as forgive and forget, especially if it's a long-standing wound. And so I want to just share this last section uh, of the Christmas story with you, uh, because I think it will give some hope for that situation. Luke chapter 2, verse 8, it says, that night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. They lived in times that were filled with hostility, culturally, personally, But the hero of the story was born on this day, the Savior. Now, what's that got to do with you? How's that change your situation? Remember back at the beginning, we talked about how the Jews were a conquered people and the Romans were oppressing them. Um, Another name that the Jews used for non-Jews was Gentiles. They sometimes use that term to refer to the Romans. Uh, There was, yes, an understandably large amount of hostility between them. But watch what Ephesians 2, uh, verse 14, this is what it says. It says, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles, uh, Jews and the Romans. He united them into one people 
when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separates us. One thing you can rest assured of is that God is stronger than that hostility. Uh, And it is strong. I get it. Bitterness is a strong thing, but God is stronger. Christ did this by ending the system of law and with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our hostility toward each other was put to death. If Jesus could end the hostility between those two groups of people, certainly he can bring peace into our situations. Uh, Certainly he can do that if, this is always the if, if we're willing to trust him to do that. If we're willing to count on him to be the savior. If we're willing to let him be the hero of the story and not have to be the hero of our own story. So I'm gonna ask the band if they would come. Uh, We're gonna just take a few minutes here just to really be able to reflect on uh, what we've heard, what we've talked about. I've found that one of the best ways to forgive is to reflect on how much I have been forgiven. Uh, Now I know you're probably thinking, oh, Pastor Kelly, you're such a good guy. Not the case. You can ask Pastor Rick. I want to round out our time just by, I want to share a few verses with you. I'm just going to run through them real quick. Uh, And they're just just all about grace. They're all about forgiveness. Psalm 103.12 says, He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. Sometimes I have a tendency to think that God likes the good version of me better than he likes the bad one. But then I remember that he, he keeps no record of my sin. Even the worst part of me, even the days that I would be most ashamed of, he keeps no record. As far as the east is from the west. Daniel 9.9 9 says, The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving even though we have rebelled against him. Isaiah 118 says, Come now, let us settle this matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. 1 Timothy 1.15, This is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. Nobody gets to say, not me. God's grace is for everyone who wants it. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. One of the most unsung heroes of the Bible is a guy named Hosea. God told Hosea he wanted him to to marry a woman whose name was Gomer. That was a bad choice, I know. Gomer was a prostitute. And God said, "I I want you to marry Gomer, and I want you to give herself fully, not out of duty. I want you to love her, hold nothing back. And by the way, she's not going to change her lifestyle. She's going to be unfaithful and cruel to you all along the way. Hosea did it. At the end of the story, uh, eventually Gomer is uh, 
owned by another man. She, she literally is owned by him. She is his property. And Hosea goes and he buys her back at the end of the story. And she comes home to live with him again. And God says, this is how my people are to me. But at the end of the story, I'm still going to buy them back. I'm still going to bring them back. Uh, man, Jose is, like a ch- Jose is a champion um, in my eyes. And I can't think of a better metaphor for the ways that we, um, we rebel against God. We like our ways better. But the reality is, no matter how far you run, God's grace runs farther. No matter how fast you run, God's grace runs faster. You can't outrun it. How incredible is that? Sometimes people say, Christians are such hypocrites. And I'm like, I know, we're terrible. Isn't our God awesome that he wants us anyway? It's pretty incredible stuff. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me, if you would. Um, I know that God has more and better knowledge than I do. I know that he has more power than I do, more authority than I do. And because of it, I know that he has better plans than I do. So I'm going to ask everybody to do me this favor uh, where you're at. I'm going to ask everybody who's here, if you would just just close your eyes. I promise I'm not going to do anything strange. Um, But I just want to take a moment of solitude with God because somebody needs to lighten their burden today. And God wants that for you. The the scripture is clear that God has nothing but grace for you if you'll release those things to him. Harboring anger and bitterness and hostility, those things will be a weight around your neck for the rest of your life if you let them. And I want to just make sure we all have an opportunity to let God carry that. Psalm Psalm 29.11 says, The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. So if you're there right now and you just, you need a little bit of peace, I want to encourage you, breathe in and let it go. Breathe in, let it go. Lord, I can't carry it anymore, so I'm going to let you carry it for me. Breathe in and let it go to him. And then just be free. Be okay with the fact that you didn't teach them a lesson. Be okay with the fact that they still think they're right. Be okay with the fact that they don't even know the wound they caused. Be free. And whenever you feel it rise up again, because it probably will, breathe in and let it go and let the Holy Spirit refresh your soul. Acts 3.19 says that if we turn to God, the times of refreshing will come from the Lord. It says repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord. We're just going to take a few minutes to to worship and reflect, and I want to encourage you, do that. Turn to God so that your sins will be wiped out and that refreshing will come from the Lord.